We've been in this series now a couple of weeks called Whatever Happened to the Power of God? It's, uh, it's a question that's been asked for a long time because we've been in a little bit of a lull as far as the things of God are concerned. And, and we, we begin to ask these questions. It's like, okay, did God disappear? Did He go somewhere? Did He take a vacation? Has He finally hit that Sabbath rest where He's just like, you know what, y'all hang out on your own. I'm good for a while. And uh, even the conference down in Tulsa that I was at a couple of weeks ago, they talked about how there's been lulls throughout time and throughout history about where you see excessive moves of God. We'll call them revivals. Where people are, are coming to faith in Christ in radical ways, getting radically saved. When I say radically saved, I'm not talking about they sat in a service somewhere and heard a message. I'm talking about God moving in mighty ways in different cities and different parts of the world and sinners just, just weeping being in the presence of God because they recognize their sin. We are going to talk about some of that. We're going to go back and look at some of those things uh, uh, in history because a lot of it's been whitewashed. We've, we've, we've removed some of the stuff to try to make it sound a little better and a more politically correct, but I don't want to get too far into that. The bottom line is, is this has been going on. They have this move of God like this, and then it kind of drops back down for a while. And then it comes up again, and it goes back down. And there's no time frame on it, but at the conference I was at, and, uh, and I find it ironic because we've been talking about this for a while, they said, you know, we've been a lull of this move of the Spirit of God for the last probably 20 years, roughly, thereabout. That there was a revival that took place down in Florida that affected the entire nation and really a good part of the world. Um, there are more missionaries that were birthed out of that revival than anything in modern history. I mean, there are people out there doing the work of the Lord and evangelizing that came out of that. And then since that time, we've kind of been in this lull. And, you know, one of the things is Kenneth Hagin died. He was a, the founder of the school that I went to. And there were a lot of people, well, what's going to happen to it now and all this other stuff? That's irrelevant. Because it's not based on any one individual. It's not based off of any person. You know, they talked about that years ago. There were healing evangelists back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s. And that a whole group of them all died. They were old. They died at all at one time. And everybody's like, I, I wonder if this is it. Is this now God going to return? Is Jesus coming back now? Because there's just been this, this lull, this, this movement is kind of over. And yet then you see it start picking back up again. We've been in this lull. And we begin to question, okay, God, Why? Are we in this lull? What happened to him? You say that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Where'd you go? Can we all agree on this? Is that in our country, we don't see God brought to the forefront like it was at one point. Think back when a lot of you guys were kids. It wasn't if you went to church. It was what church did you go to? But we don't see that today. We see, we see a difference. There are things that have taken the place of church. And so we begin to look at this from a scriptural standpoint. This is where we're always going to start. Because I can give you a thousand different reasons of why individuals today, we don't see the move of God. But let's look at this from a scriptural basis. And we're going to, we've been reading this passage out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start there again today. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. So this is a warning from Paul to Timothy. The last days, the time of the Messiah, we're in that time. Perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. They'll boasters, proud, blasphemer, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, 
Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people you need to turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and making captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do all these also resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs was also. You see, what we're seeing here is that ultimately we looked at this, that they have a form of godliness, but they denied their power. We see this across the country in churches today. Because we have a form of godliness. This is the place where God is. Our church is better than that church. Our denomination is bigger and better than that denomination. As if they've got the corner on the market of the things of God. But when you get into that and you begin to look, it's like, okay, I read through the Bible an all-powerful, all-knowing God, but yet I attend a church that I'm not sure if God's around. Because where is God? In this, where is the power of God? When you read uh, and throughout the Old Testament and you see the presence of God being so strong that they couldn't walk into the temple, where'd that presence go? He says that we're the temple. Where's the presence of God? I don't feel that. And we've got a generation that have been brought up not knowing that that's even possible to know God in a relational type way. You watch David dancing like a maniac in his underwear. Very uncomely as a king. It's very uncomely for anybody. But if you've had a toddler, you've watched it happen, right? Not a care in the world. They walk in the door, them clothes come off. And you've got a nudist running around your living room, dancing to whatever music is out there. They don't care. And that's what David said when his wife says, that's not what the king should do. And he's like, get behind me, woman. I am worshiping God. Didn't care. Not a care in the world. But what do we do today? We have formal acts of worship. We have calls to worship. Stand up. Recite this. Sit down. Sing this hymn. All of that. What happened to the intimacy that was with God? Well, we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. We put our systems, our denominations, our preference in worship up above the very presence of the one in whom we claim to be worshiping. That's one of the things that's happened in the church world today. And it's sad, but that's where we're at. we just got to be honest with ourselves. Another thing that's happened that's had an impact in more churches across the United States and parts of the world is the business model church. Because what's our goal? We need to grow this thing. we got to grow this church. It's big business. They put on seminars on effectively training leaders. They're ordering some new Sunday school curriculum because this is the one that'll take us over to the top. They're buying a new program. We've got to have a social media presence and we've got to have experts in graphics and video design putting this stuff out there so people can find us. We need to go to seminars on how we craft our sermons so that they're effective and draw at the heartstrings of the individuals. I got this email the other day. Seven simple steps to explode growth for now or organizations that will reveal the secret of growth for $99 a month. You laugh. How many people do you think bought that? Because we need growth. How do we measure if we're doing a good job? The attendance. We talked about this last week. Remember? We talked about Willow Creek and the things that they did. How they had that, the pictures up. They've got the individual here. That's the unbeliever. And they're trying to get him over here to become a disciple of Christ. Now, how do we do that? That's the argument. Is how 
does this process take place? Well, the way that they decided that they were going to do it is that the church was going to be the central focus of it all. And that we have to have services, programs for young and old, small groups, All sorts of different things. I mean, I, I, could, I could make a whole list. I have put a, a little longer list last week, but you get the thing. So they thought by participation here, if we get more people participating in this, then the result will be they will become stronger disciples. And after spending millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in the process of building new campuses and creating new uh, content and all of this stuff, only to find out that the level of true disciple which is a follower of Christ, the numbers never changed. Not one bit. It was almost as if we tried everything that we know to do, and yet it didn't work. Now, good on them for admitting that. Because most people and most organizations tend to brush what doesn't work under the rug. There's a church down in Tulsa that I, I, I respect the pastor there's church on the move, Willie George. He just retired, actually. His son has taken it over. But I would go into these conferences, these pastor's conferences, and here's what I loved about him. You don't hear this at most conferences that you go to. When you go to talk to pastors, there's, you get in a group of them, they say, well, how many are you running? You know, oh yeah, you know, what, what are you doing? You're like, oh, we baptize X amount of people. The first thing out of his mouth in that conference, let me tell you all the things I screwed up this year. Right out the chute. We don't talk like that. Why? Because we're building our platform instead of the name of Christ. This here, this model here, what's called the seeker-sensitive model, you can, you can look at it however you want, is basically, instead of preaching that Jesus Christ was crucified, He was buried for three days and rose again because you're a sinner in need of hell and deserving of such, but Christ came to take that away from you, that punishment for sin. Instead of preaching that, we started preaching sermons about how to have a better marriage, how to be happy and content in life today. All of this different stuff that's going on. I'm getting emails right now because what's right around the corner? Easter. Okay, So I see all these marketing things that are going out there right now. How to capture your Easter audience. How to have the biggest offering in 2019. Do you guys realize that offerings was never the intent of God? It's in part. It's part of it. Jesus talked about money and we just went through that. But, but that was never the intent of it. I heard somebody tell me one time that you know if, if the government took away the tax-exempt uh, status to where when you give to a church it's no longer a tax write-off, if they took that away, giving would drop. And they're Right? It would, because some people, that's why they give it. Okay, fine. But is that the heart of it? No, of course not. See, Jesus never called the church to be tax-exempt. He called it to be salt and light. We're too focused on the outward appearance of things. We're too focused on, on all this other stuff that gets in the way and confuses us. We, we want to talk about program services. What's in it for me? That's essentially what it comes down to. What makes me feel good? You see, this is another way that the church has lost the heart of God is that we're chasing after things that we can measure. But when it comes to measuring the effectiveness of a church, it can't be measured in numbers. It cannot be measured in money. Because neither one of those things, good or bad, necessarily means you're being effective for the kingdom of God. And yet we spend all of our attention there. All of it. This is what we try to do. We need to add another program. The church I was on staff with recently, uh, that's all they talked about. Well, maybe we need to add another service. Maybe we need to add more programs. And we were program poor. Like, we couldn't have more programs. What we were short on was volunteer. 
We couldn't find enough people that would want to volunteer to do all the programs that we had. Thus, all the programs we had were ineffective because they weren't being managed correctly. So it was tough. But the answer was never to turn to God and say, God, this is your church. What do you want to do with it? It was, what can we add? What can we do? You see, we had a form of godliness, but we denied His power. We do it today in the way that we do things. Now, we read this last week in Ephesians 4, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 11. It says, He Himself, referring to Jesus, He gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So you know when it says it's some, that means not all, right? Not every person on earth is called to one of these offices. They're not called necessarily to be an apostle or a prophet, an evangelist, pastors who teach. It's not necessarily that. It's a calling of God upon a person's life. But there's a purpose. Why did He give them? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Who are the saints? Look around the room. You'll see them. So, the job of the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For what? The edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children that are tossed in, to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him. Who is the head? Christ. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now you notice this. Watch what it says here. It's that these fivefold gifts are given to the church for the edifying of the saints, for the equipping of them, for the work of the ministry, for a purpose. That they may come to the unity of faith. It's the edifying of the body of Christ. So the Son of God who comes to a perfect man, the fullness of Christ, but that we should no longer be children Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now think about this. These are all really fanciful words, not how we would normally say it. In other words, there are teachings that will get in that we come together as the body of Christ to keep each other accountable, to grow together because there are teachings that are going to creep in and it will deceive you. Deceive them. We can't be like children that are tossed around. Well, how do we not be like children? We better have something that our faith is grounded upon that is not based off of the teaching of men. You guys following me? I don't care what you hear from this pulpit, which is the one that I'm in every week. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, you need to throw it out. Acts 17.11, the, the Bereans were more noble than all of the others because they would take the word in with all intentness of heart and then study the Scriptures to see if those things which were said are true. But we don't do that today. We don't study the Scriptures. We just kind of take everything else. If we go back and look at 2 Timothy, that talked about how they come in, they creep into household, and they make captives, and they load them down with sins by various lusts, but they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We have that today in our churches. If you've ever been taught that in order to get right with God, you must be baptized, you've been taught something that is contrary to Scripture. If you've ever been taught that church attendance has some significance in your relationship with God and your right standing with God, you've been taught something that is unscriptural if you've been taught that maybe if i give more or i do more or i pray more god will like me more he will bless me more if you've ever shared that thing on facebook says share this with 40 of your friends and god will bless you today you have been deceived it doesn't work that way 
You see, we've got to get back to the very thing that was founded upon, and that is the Word of God. We have allowed the doctrines of men to creep in from all directions and take us captive and allow us to be tossed to and fro like little children. Children will believe anything. Anything, right? They're gullible. If you're a good parent, you prey on that fact, right? You take advantage of the fact they'll believe anything that comes out of your mouth. Listen, if you're not nice to your sister, come December, there's a fat guy in a red suit that ain't going to come to this house. They straighten up pretty quick. We had in one of our vans, um, I discovered this one day. I didn't even know it when I got the van. It's, it's, well, it's parked outside. It's called Rusty, but it has the controls to the radio. I can control the volume from behind the steering wheel. This was a new feature for me. I found it one day. I was pretty excited about it. So I had both of my children in there. I said, guys, watch what I can do. And I'm sitting there. And I held my hand over the radio. And I'm pushing the button over here, which they can't see. I go like this. And the volume turns up. And they are mind blown. I said, now watch this one. I do it again. Volume goes down. And I said, listen, guys, I want you to understand this. This is a gift that God has given me. I can control this radio with my mind. Let's see if you can too. Now, just because I like to stir the pot, I allowed one of them the ability to control it and not the other. And I had a great time for about two weeks. It was a lot of fun. You see, something so simple and so stupid, they believed because they didn't know any better. Because they are just children. They're, they're young. Their minds are impressionable. And, and you may be thinking, who's going to pay for their therapy when they get older? <laughs> it's, it's a fair question. But we've allowed... To, see, here's the thing. We're just like that. Is we believe what we hear, but and we never question it. We, we believe things that we hear about God, but we don't go and search out the truth of God. We don't start with the Scripture. We don't do anything. You see, all of these things have caused a, a body of Christ today, in America specifically, that we have a form of godliness, but we've completely denied its power. And this isn't a new phenomenon. This was going on at the time of Christ. It's been going on ever since. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. You'll notice that Jesus is constantly dealing with the Pharisees. Okay? They were the political and religious leaders of the day. They were the teachers of Israel. They're the ones that taught the law. The law that they should follow. Here we go. Verse 1. Mark 15, verse 1. The scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now you notice that. Why do they do that? Jesus, if you are the Son of God as you claim to be, your disciples are breaking this very law. The tradition of the elders. He answered said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now stop there for a minute. What if we just took that phrase there, that sentence, and isolate it? And we put that in our time today and say, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? See, we're, we're hung up on our traditions. We're hung up on, on how we grew up or where we grew up or, or what we did. We're so hung up there that we can't possibly think outside the box and say, is there something different here? Because my denomination said this, or, or the church I grew up said this, or the pastor I grew up with said this, or my parents maybe said this. 
Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So what's he talking about here? Well, they were to take care of their mom and dad as the mom and dad got older. But what these Pharisees were doing is that they were selling off the goods of the home and kind of, it, we say, throw them to the nursing home. Now, the nursing homes around our time today are pretty, pretty sweet. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to the day that I'm going to the nursing home. In fact, I threaten my mother every time that she you know, gets a little mouthy with me and starts you know, throwing her weight around. I said, just remember, I'm picking your nursing home. Okay, So it's one of those things, but back then they would just throw them off there and they would just cast them aside because they were lovers of money and they would sell off everything. And look what he says, verse 7. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, and watch this, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, look at this. First of all, what's the word hypocrite mean? It is not what you think it is. Because it gets thrown around real loosely today. We think of a hypocrite as somebody who says one thing and does another. I hear people tell me all the time, it's like, man, I, uh, I'd go to church, but it's just full of hypocrites. You know what else is full of hypocrites? The restaurant. And everywhere else. And I always tell them, I said, listen, there's always room for one more. Why don't you come and join us anyway? But a hypocrite is not somebody who simply says one thing or does another. It actually is a Greek term that refers to an actor. One who is portraying himself as something that he is not. It is not that you lost your temper and you said something you shouldn't have. It is that you are portraying yourself to be something that you know in your heart you are not. They talk about, they use it in Shakespearean language, at these actors that were called hypocrites because they would put on these masks because they were portraying themselves as whatever that mask was. But it wasn't really who they were. It was just something they put on. It's the same. You guys follow me on that concept? Because we have to understand that. Because we all feel hypocritical if we, we know that we're Christians and we should be doing a certain thing and we get it wrong. That's not hypocritical. We screwed up, we sin, we seek repentance. Hypocrite is, I am portraying myself as something that I am not. Now, let's go back to what we just read. They creep into households, deceiving and leading astray and all of that. These people were so hung up on their traditions that they were missing the God that was right in front of them, that they were claiming to represent. But notice what Jesus said. Hypocrites, did Isaiah prophesy about you? These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, they teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. Commandments of men being taught as if this is the way. It concerns me. When any church or spiritual leader in any capacity says, you have to do it this way because this is the way we tell you to do it. We have to have it grounded in something. So they're teaching the commandments of men, dealing with the nation of Israel. And so, yeah, they draw near to me with their mouth. They show up. They do what they're supposed to do. But their heart is nowhere near me. In Psalm 78, we see the same thing again. Verse 34, when he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. They, and then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongues for their heart was never steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Again, we see the same 
thing going on. Isaiah 29, verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me has taught the commandment of men. That was what we just read. That was what Jesus quoted, right? So he's dealing with this thing all the time. In Ezekiel, Jerusalem was captured. It was during the captivity. And look at what this says in verse 23 of Ezekiel 32. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land has been given to us as possession. That was a promise to them, to Abraham. The land was there. They've been taken out of it. Jerusalem destroyed. Verse 25, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with blood. That's a commandment that they broke. You lift up your eyes towards your idols, a commandment that they broke. And you shed blood, another commandment that they were not supposed to do. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, and you commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. I don't think I have to explain what that means. Should you then possess the land, the land of promise? Say thus to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the ruin shall fall by the sword, and the one who is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence, for I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed, the desolation of the land. It was her, their arrogance that kept them there. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another. Everyone's saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a, as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on the instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, the thing is here is that they loved the word of the Lord. Remember, that is how God spoke to the people of Israel was through these prophets. And so they're like, oh, let's go hear what the prophet says, and let's go hear what he says. But their hearts was never there. They heard the word. They, it was a delightful song to them, a pleasant voice. But their heart wasn't there. They didn't really want to hear what God said, because what God said required some action on their part. But they wanted to feel good for a moment. They wanted to just take in the word of the Lord and say, yeah, I'm going to feel better. But their heart was far from this you go through all the old testament you will see this pattern over and over and over with the people of Israel and you know why it's specifically with the people of Israel because it didn't write it specifically about all the other people that would have done the exact same thing we do it today we do it all the time how do we determine if our heart is close to God because we don't want to just come near to him with our lips right we want a heart that belongs to the lord so how do we do this well it's a word that we don't like to hear said very often. But the works that we do are a result of the heart that we have. The motive behind the works that we do is either to be seen by men and let people know how great we are, or that people see God in us. The things that we do are a result. Look at them. Look at the, what it just said here. Their lips, they're worshiping you with their lips. They're doing the right thing. They're keeping the commandments, some of them. They show up when the prophet speaks. They showed up to the synagogue. They show up to all this other stuff. Their hearts aren't near them. Here you've got the teachers of Israel with the Pharisees doing all the right things, 
According to the commandments, their heart wasn't there. So in other words, your actions do not dictate your heart. Your heart dictates your actions. Let's look at this in John chapter 4. We're going to read a good chunk here. I know there's food cooking, I promise. We, we will get you fed here in a minute. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees, so here we see them again, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, let's pause there. Where's Samaria? What is Samaria? Samaria was a time the Jews had gone up there and they had intermarried. Now, they lost their lineage, which is a big deal to the Jewish people because it was all about heritage, whether you were of the tribe of Benjamin, Levi, Judah, whatever. You had to trace that. The Samaritans had lost all of that because they had intermingled with all the non-Israelites and thus they didn't know who they were. They are considered half-Jews. And so the Jewish people did not like them. You don't go to them. But to get where to Galilee where he was going, you had to go through Samaria. So he left Judea, departed to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, and now you know why. They were looked down upon. They were a second-class citizen, if that. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, is, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. Now remember, what is living water? River, creek, rain, something, underground, because it's moving water. So it was a big deal. It was part of their worship. It had to be living water. They had to mikvah, bathe in these living waters. They couldn't do it. If one drop of rain hits a stagnant pool of water, it was considered living water because one drop of rain could cleanse the entire thing, ceremonially speaking. And so this is a fair question. Jesus answered her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. She's still not picking up on it. And Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have well said because you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one whom you now have is not your husband, is that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just told her that he is the Messiah, this one that they're waiting for. And at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Remember, you didn't do this, let alone her being Samaritan. You did not just have these private conversations. Yet no one said, who do you, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot. 
and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought any, him anything to eat? Now watch this. This is what I want you to see. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white with harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. You see, there's, you've got this thing going on where Jesus is talking to somebody he's not supposed to. She's a woman and she's Samaritan. They are dogs. They are useless. But he went there and he sat down and he took a drink and he's waiting for her and he talks to her and says, guess what, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And her immediate response was to run into town and tell everybody that she could that I think this is him. I think this is the guy. But the disciples come back with one thing on their mind. What we went to do. We went to buy food. So they come back and says, all right, Jesus, you know, eat. You're hungry. Eat. And he takes this opportunity to teach them something. Because I'm sure he really was hungry. But the thing was, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You know, oftentimes we sit in church and we talk about, boy, I need to eat this meat. Or, boy, we were fed good today. Or, they need to feed me. It's not the word that feeds us. It's the doing the word. Jesus' mission was to do the will of Him who sent me. And then He says, listen, I'm sending you. If you knew, you say the harvest is the time off. I'm telling you, it's now. It's not the work, guys. It's the heart. Is my heart to do the will of the Father? To fulfill the mission that Jesus started on this earth, that He sent His disciples out, that they would go and make disciples. We talked about that last week, right? We go and make disciples. We talked about this verse this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now you notice that all the things that were done were not what made them right with God. The image that they put on, the portrayal of themselves... They were portraying themselves as something that they were not. That they were the sons of God, but they couldn't be the sons of God because Jesus didn't know them. So yeah, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons. I performed miracles and wonders or whatever in your name. But I don't know Him? That doesn't work. We've got to be about the will of the Father. Whoever uh, will do the will of the Father, will be the one to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is the will of the Father? That all would come to salvation. That's His will, ultimately. How do we do that? Where do we do that? We see the same thing happen with, with Philip in John 14. Mercy, surely I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and if you ask any in my name, I will do it. Anything in my name. Now, look at this here. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Did that ever stop? 
You see, Philip, as an example, was, wasn't a disciple. He wasn't one of the apostles. He was baptized as a deacon. And he goes out of there and starts doing things, doing the will of the Father. We watched this happen. You and I, think about this for a minute. If you're a born-again Christian today, living your life for God, it is as a result of the original 12 apostles going out and making disciples. That's how far it's trickled down. It should mean something to you. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. In other words, I'm only here a short time. You'll do more than I did because you have more time on this earth. But the power never left. So what did Jesus do? What was it? What was his mission on earth? What was he out doing? Matthew 4, verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. There were three things he was doing. He was teaching, preaching, and healing. Mark 1, verse 38, But he said to them, Let us go into the next town that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues uh, throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now, instead of healing kinds of sickness, it talks about casting all, out demons. One and the same, guys. Matthew 9, verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. They, the disciples went about Jesus' work, doing more and greater. But when did that stop? And why did it stop? Because we've allowed a form of godliness to trick in, trickle into the church today, into the body of Christ today, that we are content with where we are. We don't want to push in to greater things. Imagine, if you will, that you have a, an ambition. We just went through uh, the new year, and your ambition is to get into shape. I'm going to work out. I don't know if you know this, but if you don't know this, I'm going to clarify this for you. That going to the gym does not make you in better shape. Because if it did... I'll tell you where I'm going right after service today. It's the work that you put in at the gym. Going to church doesn't make you right with God. It's, does the Lord know you? In your heart, does He know you? You see, we have lost this because we don't want this. We don't want God to interfere with our comfortable lives because we do not have the heart of the Father. Jesus was sent into this earth to preach, teach, and heal. Nothing has ever changed. Look at what Mark 16, verse 15 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, who is he who believes? It is the individual that heard the preaching of the gospel. And these signs will follow those who believe. Who are those that believe? The same people that got saved. It's not talking about the disciples. It's talking about the people that got saved. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. They will drink anything deadly. It will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And watch what verse 19 says. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The sign gifts of God. The, what we call the power of God. The power of God is so much greater than the simple signs that we, that we read about and claim. But the sign gifts of God were always used in connection with the preaching of the gospel. Where there is no gospel being preached, there will be no signs, wonders, and miracles being gone for. 
They're one in the same. There was a purpose behind them. Now we want, as a church today, uh, we want to be ones that were like, we just want God to move in our lives and do all this crazy stuff so we feel good when we get out of here. I want to go to a church where the sermons make me feel uplifted when I leave. I want to feel good. I want them to tell me how I can have my best life now. I want to go to a, to a church that, where the worship is so on point, the music is so good that, man, I just, I just had an experience there. Like the lighting and the fog machines, all of which I love, by the way. But I, I, want, I want church. I want a, a church that has such a cool children's program that my kids have the best time. And yet none of that stuff is anything Jesus ever said. He just said, hey, would you guys go make some disciples for me? You see, we've replaced God with programs. We've replaced God with services. We've replaced God with all sorts of different things. How about we just get back to knowing God and making Him known? Jesus came into this earth for one thing, to do the will of the Father. You and I, we're not knowing where the power of God is simply because we are not in connection with the Father. I can tell you what happened to the power of God. We swept it away. God didn't go anywhere. We did. We've moved away from Him. We no longer want to sit here and wait and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? We wake up and we have our agendas and we have our things planned and we have all this other stuff. You know, there's, there's percentages. I've talked about this before. Is that they talk about that if you, on a Sunday morning, whatever your congregation size is, you can expect about 20% to show up to a midweek service. So, you know, if you had 100 people, you'd have 20 people. At like, like we have a Wednesday night Bible study. Sometimes you have a midweek service, you know, a full-on service. Uh, but 20% is about the rule of thumb on that. You want to know what a prayer service is? About one. So if you have 100 people, I say five, but they say the statistics are really one. If you had 100 people, you'll have about five show up. Why is that? Prayer is an opportunity that we're having in connection and we're, we're talking to the Father. We're, we're there and, and you worship and all of that stuff. But why is it? Prayer is not exciting. It doesn't have the same luster that a worship service would have. It doesn't have the same luster. Some people love teaching and, and, and hearing the Word and getting into that and understanding it more and all of that. So they'll show up for a Bible study. But boy, prayer, i got other things to do. We've lost the heart of God. We really have. We no longer are, are concerned with the ones that are lost and dying around us, we're more concerned of how good we feel in our lives and our walk with the Lord. We have fooled ourselves. You guys, we have a form of godliness, but have denied its power. It is time that we, as the body of Christ, get back to the basics and get back to the things of God. Because it is only God that can transform a city, a state, a country. Only God. I don't care how much you bring to the table. We all have a part to play in this and we have work to do. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry.